Good morning and welcome to West Hills Church. My name is Will Duvall. I'm the lead pastor here and uh, on behalf of all of us, we want to welcome you to our virtual church online and thank you for tuning in. Um, it's so good to have you. If you're newer to West Hills, we would love to connect with you, get you connected here at the church. And so our uh, pastor of connections, uh, Thad Yes, will come up after the service today and uh, introduce you and just to the different ways that you can connect with us, and we would love to uh, get you hooked in with the life of our church. So um, if you're not new and you've uh, been tuning in here regularly with us at West Hills, I have a confession to make. I lied last week uh, when I told you that we were just taking a one-week break from our study through the book of Genesis. We're actually going to take uh, one more Sunday uh, off this morning because I just felt convicted this past week through prayer that in the midst of just all the noise and the swirling opinions in our current conversations in our country, specifically about race and racism, that this is a topic that is too important and too timely, but most importantly, too biblical for us not to address as a church from the pulpit. And so I want to acknowledge right up front uh, that this issue of racism can be really divisive, polarizing. I also readily admit that I am by no means an expert on this topic, quite the contrary. I, uh, in many ways, feel hardly qualified at all to personally even weigh in on it. Uh, so to that end, my last confession is that this sermon is actually not my own. As I was turning this past week to outside resources for help, I was reminded of a profoundly impactful sermon that I myself heard two years ago now at the Together for the Gospel conference in 2018 in Louisville, preached by my favorite pastor, David Platt. And uh, I have never preached someone else's sermon in general. I'm not a fan of that. It's actually a growing trend in the church world. Some pastors uh, don't even write any of their own sermons anymore. You can purchase other pastor sermons online nowadays. Um, I have no intention of becoming one of those pastors and making a habit of that. However, in this isolated case, on this particular topic, with this particular sermon, uh, I decided um, that I would make an exception. So I want to begin, as we always do at West Hills, uh, most importantly with the reading uh, of God's Word together. And so if you would, as you're able, even at home there, to stand with me uh, out of respect for the reading of God's Word, we're going to be in the book of Amos, chapter 5, verses 18 through 27. Hear the word of the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not night, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. 
Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikath, your king, and Kiyun, your star god, your images that you have made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we need you. We depend on your wisdom, your guidance, Holy Spirit, every week here as we study your word. But some weeks it feels especially important. We feel especially needy of your guidance through tricky, navigating tricky, tough subjects. And so this morning, God, I pray for an extra measure of your, of your guidance as we seek to submit ourselves under the authority of your word and have our, our hearts and our character and our actions be shaped more in accordance with your heart, your character, and how you would have us act, Father. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated at home there. So Platt begins by giving us the context for this section of Amos. He says it's divided grammatically into three parts, each of which gives us a glimpse into the state of God's people during the reign of Jeroboam II, uh, king in Israel, about 50 years before the northern kingdom of Israel would be taken into exile. And God uses this shepherd from Tekoa to indict his people on three primary offenses. Number one, they were eagerly anticipating future salvation while they were conveniently denying present sin. Uh, Eagerly anticipating future salvation while conveniently denying present sin. Amos warns, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why in the world would you desire it? Amos asks. This day when God would come to judge all those who had turned from him and to save all those who trust in him. The day that ushers in the defeat of God's enemies, but but the deliverance of God's friends. The mistake that God's people make here was that thinking that they were God's friends. In this text, Amos clearly says, you are not in good standing with God. You think you'll be safe on that day, but you will not. This is a frightening passage that shows how possible it is to anticipate salvation for your life tomorrow while turning a blind eye to sin in your life today. The devil is a deceiver and he delights in blinding our eyes and our minds and our hearts to the sin in us and the sin around us. And so Platt points out, notice how the pronouns shift in verse 21, it's almost as if God is interrupting his people while they're worshiping him to say, I hate, I despise your feast, your offerings. Listen to the language. They're yours. They're for you. They're not for me. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, your offerings. I will, will not accept them or look upon them. These offerings that were intended to be a pleasing aroma to the Lord in the original language Hebrew, God literally says, I cannot stomach their stench. Take the noise of your songs away from me. I'm not listening. Why? Verse 24 answers, 
second indictment. They were indulging in worship while they were ignoring injustice. God's people were quick to gather together, to give offerings, to sing songs to God above them, but they were content to ignore injustice around them. And God says, I hate it. The point of these verses is clear. People who truly worship God above them will sacrificially work for justice around them. Justice is defined as fairness for the less fortunate and dignity and compassion for the needy. Righteousness includes attitudes of mercy and generosity and honest dealings that reflect the character of God. But Israel was not reflecting the character of God and as a result God was rejecting their worship which leads us to Amos's last indictment in verses 25 through 27. They were carrying on their religion while they were refusing to repent. In these verses that Stephen later quotes in Acts chapter 7, he says, the Lord, the God of hosts says, you are a religious people carrying on all kinds of religious activities, but you are refusing to repent of your sin. And so I will send you into exile. God is not honored by mouths that are quick to sing and hands that are quick to rise in worship when those same mouths and those same hands are slow to speak and slow to work respectively against injustice. Our God hates worship like that. In this way, Platt says, Amos 5 beckons us to ask the question, personally, As people who gather every week to give our offerings and sing our songs to God above us, have we been slow to speak and slow to work against racial injustice around us? Now, Platt acknowledges that there are lots of forms of injustice, not just racism, and there are lots of forms, even of racial injustice than simply the white-black historical divide. This call to justice could be applied in many contexts, but today, especially, as we've been reminded the past few weeks in our country, we need to ask ourselves the question, is our work towards racial justice, is it passing Amos's test here? And Platt's answer My answer is clear that on a whole, churches in America, instead of bridging the racial divide in our country, have historically and are still today widening the racial divide in our country. Platt says, I want to show you that this is not just my opinion, it's a fact. But at the same time, he says, I want to show you that this fact does not have to continue. This can change. Our churches can be powerful. They should be the most powerful impetus for justice in our culture on this issue of race. If we will humble ourselves before God and one another and repent and pray and work together for justice in a way that brings great glory to our God. That is the heart of Amos 5.24, let justice roll down like waters. If we want God to be pleased with our worship, we need to repent and work 
for racial justice as his people. And so Platt offers us six exhortations based on Amos's three indictments for addressing the problem of racism that exists in our hearts, in our church, in our country. Exhortation number one, we need to look at the reality of racism. Look at the reality of racism. Platt says, I was tempted not to even use the word racism because I know immediately what comes into most people's minds when, when we hear the word racism. We, we think of the extreme. We think of the white supremacist marching on Charlottesville or a Klan member from the 1960s and we think I'm not a white supremacist so I'm not racist. In fact, many white people think very few people are racist. We can even start to believe that racism is not really a problem today. We might even say that we are colorblind, that it doesn't matter to us if someone is black or white. But brothers and sisters, the reality is it does matter in our country today whether someone is black or white. Now, Platt says, I would prefer to talk in terms of ethnicity instead of race because when we look at the Bible from the beginning, we have only one race of people, the human race. Whatever color Adam and Eve were, they contained in them a DNA designed by God that would eventually develop into a multicolored family across a multicultural world. And in this way, God's word teaches us that regardless of the color of our skin, we all have the same roots because we're all part of the same race, which is why the term race is unhelpful because it actually undercuts this created unity before God and that's why any sense of racial hierarchy or inequality, any concept of racism goes directly against the design of God. It is sinful to the core. The Bible beckons us to speak with crystal clear clarity on the equality and the dignity of all people of all colors from all countries. Platt defines racism as a system in which race, especially skin color, profoundly affects people's economic, political, and social experiences. A system in which race is significant enough to be regularly acknowledged and mentioned. So he points out on the most simple, practical level. Right? I'll just give my own personal example here. It's the reason why I might refer to Harry Walls as my African-American pastor friend, but I would never have referred to Gary Brooks, our former pastor here at West Hills, as my Caucasian pastor. So Platt says we're not talking here about blunt prejudice or individual animosity alone, and we're not just talking about the past either. We're looking at the reality of racism now, today. Many people wonder, aren't we past this? Like, yes, slavery was wrong, but that's been gone for decades. But the reality is we could have said that in 1955. But we all know that racism was alive and well then. And likewise, we could say today, everyone uses the same water fountains today. And we can all sit on the same bus wherever we want, which is true. And we need to pause and praise God that those things have changed, that we have made progress, but it doesn't mean we've arrived. There's not still progress to be made. It doesn't mean that racism is gone. So Platt encourages us to simply look at the facts, right? You can find these statistics in a helpful book 
divided by faith. But here are the facts. Black Americans are much more likely today to be unemployed than white Americans. The current ratio is two unemployed black people for every one unemployed white person, and that has held pretty constant since 1950. Income inequality between white and black people is close to 50% worse today than it was 40 years ago even in this country. African-American babies die at a rate of over twice the frequency of white American babies, and African-American mothers are four times more likely to die in childbirth than white American mothers. Young African-American males are six times more likely to be murdered than are young white American males. Disparities in the criminal justice system have been detailed for years in our society. Put it all together, Platt says, and you see white Americans are far more likely than black Americans to get a quality education, to have higher paying jobs, and to live a more uh, affluent life with less crime. Now, we can disagree and debate why this is the case. And we'll get to that in a moment, the reason for these statistics. But Platt's point here, my point, is in mentioning this, is that it is to make it clear that race affects, profoundly affects one's life in our country. It really does matter whether or not one is white or black in America today. And we need to see this, racism, as our problem. It's all of our problem, right? We are our brother's keepers, as we learned weeks ago in Genesis 4. We are immersed in this culture, in this problem of racism. We all want racism to die. We would all say that, claim that, but despite our best intentions of our hearts, the church today is one of, continues to be one of, the most segregated institutions in our country. Over 95% of white Americans attend predominantly white churches and over 90% of African Americans attend predominantly black churches. Now, I, Pastor Will, praise God as a caveat that West Hills is a more diverse church than most particularly in West County, St. Louis. As much as we still have room to grow as a church in the area of diversity, we look, I think, more like God's ideal picture of a church in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, than most of our sort of peer churches do today. And I praise God for that. But the reality, as Platt points out, is that the American church on the whole has deepened the divide in our country could it be, he asked, that as much as we'd like to think of the church as a force for countering racism, that right now the church is actually a force for continuing it? Instead of looking out there for all the reasons behind racism, do we actually need to start by looking in here? By looking in here. We need to look at the reality of racism. We cannot be comfortable as the people of God with a clear white-black divide in our country and we can't be content with deepening that divide in our church. It is not just and we will not be found to be worshiping God if we ignore injustice or far worse, if we increase it. So what can we do? Exhortation number two. 
live in true multi-ethnic community. Let's live in true multi-ethnic community. Biblically, we can think of Ephesians chapter 2. We know in the first century there was a massive cultural divide between Jew and Gentile. You didn't eat together. You didn't associate with each other. You called each other dogs. But Jews started following Jesus, and so did Gentiles, which was a problem for the Jews. And so in the book of Acts, it was a controversy when Gentiles wanted to be baptized and be a part of the church. It was scandalous when they started eating at the same tables and worshiping in the same rooms. And Paul writes Ephesians in part to say, this is right. You are one now. You are no longer divided. Ephesians 2 verse 14, for he himself, Christ is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and reconciling us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He says the same thing in Galatians 3, verse 28. Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This verse is not denying ethnic or gender distinctions. It's saying that over and above these real differences, we are still one in Christ, that the gospel has the unique, transcendent power to bring different people together. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Platt notes, ultimately, division among people over race or anything else goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when man and woman sinned against God, separating themselves not only from God, but from one another. And ever since that day, it is sin that has stood at the root of all racial pride and prejudice. But Jesus went to the cross. He conquered sin. He made a way for people to be freed from it to be not only restored to God, but in the process to be reconciled to one another. And that's why followers of Christ, regardless of skin color, have one father as one family in one household because the cross makes true multi-ethnic community possible. And so Platt asks, if that's true, then why are so many of our churches so white? And like we all hate slavery, Jim Crow laws, certainly then we cannot be content with churches that look like time capsules preserving the divisive effects of the past. Platt says this is not the kind of distinction from the world that God is calling us to, brothers and sisters. He's calling us to show the world what true multi-ethnic community can be. And by the power of the gospel, We can do this so much better than the world could ever do it. And so let's do it, he says. Let's do it. I would just exhort us personally at West Hills. Let's do it. Like the next time we host a race in the church panel discussion here with your black brothers and sisters on stage, let's make sure that event is just as well attended as a Sunday morning worship service at West Hills. Like the next time that we host a church-wide fellowship event, we, we have to make sure we don't have some unspoken, unofficially designated black table. Like, I don't care if, if Kiona and Sierra and Lasin and Antonia are all best friends. I am breaking up that party and I'm 
occupying a chair at that table and inserting myself into that conversation because I need that conversation. I need to listen to them. I need to learn from those sisters in Christ because they've got things to teach me that frankly, many of you all can't because they have learned, lived experiences that we haven't, right? And that leads us to Platt's third exhortation, which is let's listen to and learn from one another specifically from others who don't look like us, who might not think like us. James 1, right before James addresses prejudice and favoritism and partiality in the church, he writes, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And I would just point out, I think we have all been reminded these past two weeks now in our current news cycle of just how emotionally charged these issues are. And that's why Platt says, it's precisely why we need to listen to and learn from one another more now than ever. uh, Platt cites some troubling research that he came across in preparing this message two years ago. He says researchers gave people different options as contributing factors to racism. They pointed out these disparities between white and black people when it came to jobs and income and housing. And then they asked, why do these disparities exist? And the respondents can answer along this spectrum. And I'll show you uh, some slides here to help you get a visual. On the one hand, on the left side, people could respond that these disparities were due primarily to a lack of individual responsibility, basically a lack of personal motivation among individual people to work hard and climb out of poverty. Two, they could say disparities were due primarily to unequal education, lack of access or quality education. Or number three, on the right side, they could say that racialization was due primarily to unjust systems and discrimination in society. And so they asked white and black people, and then they asked if they were professing Christians or not. And here's what they found that white non-Christians explained racism, these racial disparities, more according to the left side of the spectrum. More white non-Christians were prone to answer that racial inequalities were due to individual factors, some lack of education, but not as much systemic discrimination. On the other hand, more black non-Christians were prone to answer that racial disparity is due to unjust discriminating structures and systems, including education. So more on the right side of the scale. But here's what Platt says was so interesting, that among professing Christians, what the researchers found is that white professing Christians were even farther on the left-hand side of the scale, even more prone to explain racial disparity due to a lack of individual responsibility or personal motivation to work and get out of poverty. And black professing Christians were even farther on the right side of the scale, more prone to explain racial inequality due to discrimination in societal systems. Now here's the point Platt makes is that basically the more Christian you are, so to speak, the more divided you are on the issue of racism. And so the idea that if everybody was just a Christian, we wouldn't have a racism problem isn't true. Our faith, which we want to bring us together across races on this point, is actually driving us further apart. Which means, Platt says again, we really need to listen and learn from one another. None of us 
can think about this issue well in isolation. We need to get out of our echo chambers and get in true multi-ethnic community where we're sitting around the table sharing life with brothers and sisters who think differently from us. And when we're at that table, we need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. After all, we know as followers of Christ that the Bible speaks to both sides of the spectrum without question. Right? The Bible speaks to individual responsibility. We are responsible before God and one another for our actions. Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. We're responsible for working hard, Colossians 3.23. At the same time, though, the Bible also requires us to work hard for justice, Micah 6.8. To correct oppression, Isaiah 1.17. To defend the rights of those in need, Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. And while that is all true, we will miss it in the church if we're not sitting down at the same table with people who are different from us with our Bibles open, listening to and learning from one another. There are so many ways that we can do that, just practically listen to podcasts from people who are of a different ethnicity, race than you. Sermons, listen to sermons from African-American pastors. The list goes on. Brings us to exhortation number four. Fourthly, Platt says, let us love and lay aside our preferences, our preferences for one another. Let us love and lay aside our preferences on behalf of one another. Think of John chapter 13, verse 35, where Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my my disciples if you have love for one another. In one way, Platt says we can see that spectrum as extremely encouraging if we think about it as an opportunity. Just think about two individuals, one on either side here, a white follower of Christ on the far left side or a black follower of Christ on the far right side. They think about racism and the reasons behind it in totally different terms. It affects so much of how they view the world economically, socially, politically. They're on opposite ends of the spectrum. But now picture those two same people in the same church, listening to one another, learning from one another, loving one another in authentic Christian community, that makes no sense to the world. And that is what we want to see in our churches. Those are the kinds of churches that cause people to stop and say, how are those people together And we get to answer because the word of God unites us. The word of God made flesh. Jesus unites us. The problem is, Platt says, that we like being around people who look like us. People who sing songs like us. People who think like us. This has been the name of the game in church growth for decades now. How do you draw a crowd to your church? You appeal to the crowd's preferences. So many of our churches have been affected by what Platt calls the homogeneous unit principle that a church can grow fastest if it only has one cultural group to focus on. If people like being around people who look like them, sing and and talk and think like them, then focus on trying to reach just one type of person in one church and then let another type of church uh, reach another type of person. But Platt points out, this is unbiblical. You never see Paul saying to Jewish people, you guys just stick together and we can grow our churches a lot faster if we keep the Gentiles out. 
and you Gentiles over there, you just start your own churches. That's the best way to go. No, they are working hard to come together. They're sacrificing personal preferences because the church is not about their preferences. It's about the display of Christ's supremacy. And the glory of Jesus shines most clearly when different groups of people come together and he is the only explanation for why we're together. That's what we want to mark our churches. But Platt recognizes that's not easy. And I would just say a personal amen and that I personally need to confess and be more willing to sacrifice some of my personal preferences Perhaps as a white pastor, I need to grow in my love and my laying aside of my preferences for the members of the church that I pastor in many ways, including my preaching. I must be careful not to speak from the Bible on issues that are popular among white followers of Christ while staying silent in the Bible on issues that are important to non-white followers of Christ. Studies have shown that white church leaders are less likely to speak and act prophetically on race issues because white church leaders have more to lose when they do. If you want to draw a crowd, stay away from racial issues. If you want to draw a white crowd, you especially stay away from them. Because the reality is people mainly want to be comforted when they come to church. If you give people a choice between the church of comfort and the church where you're asked to make sacrifices to change your life, people will choose the church of comfort most every time, which is why we've designed so much of our church culture the way that we have. And it's why we're so prone to talk about issues, uh, not to talk about issues that are uncomfortable to us. But I say to you, as chief among sinners, Platt claims to be, but I Pastor Will actually am chief of sinners. We don't have that option. The Bible does not give us the option to ignore uncomfortable issues. This word has the power to bring together God's people. And if it's not doing that, then we need to seriously ask if we are faithfully following it. All of it, not just the parts that appeal to our preferences and to our politics. Amos 5 makes it clear, we cannot sing our songs while we stay silent on injustice and think that our God will be pleased. We say that we want to be rid of racism. The question is whether we want it bad enough to lay aside our comforts in our churches. Exhortation number five is we must leverage our influence for justice in the present. Amos says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Platt says, my encouragement for each of us is to look at our lives, our families, our church, at the opportunities we have, the positions in which God has put us, the resources God has given us, to look at all this and say, how can I leverage my influence for justice around me? Again, speaking broadly, but in every era of American racism, Platt notes that white churches have on the whole been found complacent. You can think of the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King Jr., as he sat 
in that Birmingham jail was visited and criticized by eight white pastors for his methods. They called on him to be more patient in promoting civil rights, which prompted him to write that famous letter from a Birmingham jail in which he says, in the midst of blatant injustices afflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churches stand on the sidelines and merely mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard so many ministers say, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And so, Platt notes, here we sit 50 or so years later, and I think we need to at least ask the question, will history see any stain in us? MLK's letter ended with these words, There was a time when the church was very powerful. It was during that period when the early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer which recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If the church today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. May that not be said of us in the 21st century or of us at West Hills. And finally, exhortation number six, Platt calls on us to long for the day when justice will be perfect. Amos 5, the day of the Lord in an ultimate and final sense is still to come. And as we think about that day, aren't you thankful that God, by his grace, has made a way for us to be safe from his judgment. Despite all our injustice, all our unrighteousness, praise God that in his justice, he has poured out the just wrath due you and me in our sin upon his son, Jesus the Christ, who lived the life that we could not live, that died the death that we deserve, and he has conquered the enemy that we could not conquer, death itself, and all who come to him have their sin completely covered by his blood. Platt says such grace compels us to repentance, all the more so this side of the cross. Once we're saved, may it be said of us that we eagerly anticipate future salvation while acknowledging present sin. May it not be said of us that we indulged in worship while ignoring injustice. And may it not be said of us that we carried on our religion while refusing to repent. No, may we live and pray and work for the justice to roll and righteousness to reign, specifically when it comes to race in our culture, confident that as we do so, There is coming a day when Amos 5, verse 24 will be fully realized. A day when every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and the human race, every color of person who has trusted in Christ will gather around his throne, forgiven of all our sin, free to worship him in a place of perfect justice, of pure righteousness. Let's live, church, for that day. Let's pray and work for that day when the glory of God will be fully and finally exalted in the unity of his church. Amen and amen. Let's pray.